job, guys. Obviously, Bob Gregg's not here today. He out in Las Vegas. <laughs> He's in the real Cenacopia this morning. <clears throat> okay, as long as he ties off his winnings, I don't care. Good to have you here this morning. I, I want to say this. I forgot to tell you that every this year, we uh, obviously, we always have a, a big Super Bowl party, you know, here and have a fun time. But uh, I don't know if you know this or not, uh, or I've made the connection anyhow. But uh, if the Vikings win today and the Vikings go to the Super Bowl, uh, you all know Bill and Danielle, who have played ball with us many, many times. Uh, she owns a salon where Jamie works, and they're just great people. Bill's been on my ball team forever, and Danielle and the boys and everything. Well, Bill's brother is the head coach of the, of the Vikings. So he was at Kansas City as a coach. Uh, not the head coach, but a coach, and then he took the head coaching job there, so this year they're going to the Super Bowl, so it'll be a fun time if they win today. Uh, we should have hired him here. We'd have been in the Super Bowl probably, but anyway. Okay. Now today, uh, we're going to, as I said last week, we're going to close out our study on uh, the training of our children, and as you know, uh, uh, all of our study has been really based on a key verse that we found in Proverbs chapter 22, verse 6, as we were just coming through the book of Proverbs. And we'll do that from time to time. Uh, there we'll, we'll hit a verse there that has so much to it and so much that has to be rolled out of it that we'll just take the time to uh, take, uh, you know, and work it all out. And that verse, of course, is really the backbone of, of, of having children and family in it. Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. And as I told you from the very beginning and all the way through, that's probably... Uh, for your family, that's probably the single greatest promise anywhere in the Word of God. It's God's guarantee to you that if you do your part, He'll do His part, and uh, you'll have an absolute guarantee that your children will grow up uh, everything that want, God wants them to be. And we have seen and we have talked about a lot of different aspects to teaching and training, you know, your kids. My job uh, as in anything I do with you in the Bible, I've tried to break it down and make it as easy for you as I could, that you could understand it, that you could grasp it, and then you could do something with it. Now it's your job, your time, uh, to take the material and fit it into your own life first and then into your family. And I must say, so many of you are doing a wonderful job of that. I'm getting reports every week as you are taking your little time with your families and uh, you know, and everything, and there's even some cases where the husbands don't want to do it and refuse to do it, and mom picks it up and keeps on doing it. You know what? I that's great. Thank God somebody's doing it. But but it's a thing where you know it's it's really going to work for you. And um, you know now's the time to bring all the material into play with your family. And uh, you know, and I even gave you a starter plan. And of course, that plan is what you're doing now is going through every week and listening to it. And last week I gave you. The real key to having your family be successful, and that is the vision that you will provide for them. And I gave you the verse back in Proverbs chapter 29, verses 17 and 18. But verse 18 basically said, Wherefore, where there is no vision, the people perish. And we talked about how that, that we always use that for a church, and, and that's true. But when you look at verse 17, it's definitely putting it into the context of your children, providing a vision uh, for your children. I told you Friday night... <coughs> We had a, a preliminary meeting for a camp with the uh, key leader people that are there. And, and uh, you know, uh, I want to carry on through uh, the camp and then out of camp 
uh, and I just don't, I don't, I don't want to do things with our kids now anymore where we're at and just chopped up segments. Do this, and then six months later do that. I want to pull it all together. Joe's already on top of it. He's already got uh, uh, everything laid out, and uh, we've already got our emails. The leaders have already got their agendas or working on them, what we're going to do. I want to work with the counselors this year to help ensure that, that everything just kind of moves and we stay in flow with everything that we've got to do. And, you know, once we leave here and understand the vision and, and, and how we impact it into our family, you know, it's the fact of getting your child to see him or herself as a vital part of your family based on the vision that God has given you, the mom and the dad, uh, just like it is for my vision for this church. This church would go nowhere if I didn't see what God wants us to do and then interact it into your lives. And then, you know, we looked at every phase of, of their life and their training and how that we need to reinforce those things, uh, the vision of God, till we all get together and becomes one with us, that we understand it, just like we, we do in our church. I told you last week that four of the great things that will come out of, you know, getting a vision into your family, into your child, and then implementing that and then keeping that, uh, through the vision will be the aspect of your ability to shape their will, your, your ability to develop their, their, their mindset, mold their character, and most importantly, bring their spirit in line with God's spirit that you know, everything just goes uh, the way it's supposed to, that kindred spirit with God. And, you know, within the vision, uh, Proverbs chapter 29, verses 7, 18, I remember I gave you four things about the vision. And this is, these are absolutely vital for you to remember. I'm giving you these because of where we're going here in just a few moments. I want to recap this because it's all going to kind of go together today. I told you that the vision is not what you want for your child, but what God wants for your child. Too many parents make that mistake. You either have your kid be the best football player, the best basketball player, the best baseball player, or he'll be the best Christian. You get to choose which one that is. And it's just that simple. And it isn't about what your plan is for your child. Uh, that's, it isn't about your vision. It's about you getting God's vision, seeing your family and how God sees them. And then in the overall concept, whatever they do with sports, and there's certainly nothing wrong with that, but realizing that uh, first and foremost, they're going to be, need to be what God wants them to be. I, I gave you the second thing, the vision uh, for your child must start with, with you, the parent. And that's, that's vital. They're not going to pick it up the road. I can't give it to them. As good as our elementary division is, they can't do it. As good as Zach and Jenny is with the kid, they can't do it. As good as our camping program will, has been and will be and get, can get better, we can't do it. Has to start with you. We are reinforcements for you. We are the, we are the girders that hold up your bridge that you build in your child's life between them and God. We talked about how the division has to be with passion. I was thinking about that this week, and, and uh, you know, I thought about, uh, you know, so many families, they're just uh, like so many churches. It's just, you know, it's just, you wonder why they even exist. I was reading over in John chapter 5, uh, it's always been a favorite story of mine. It's probably one of the most prolific and profound stories in the Bible. And because of its importance and how it impacts you might guess that the scholars tell us that that, should not, that story shouldn't be in our Bible. Uh, but it's a, it's a great story. It's a story how that, that, about the pool at Bethesda, how that all the, all the weak folks, the 
folks that were powerless and, and crippled and, and hurting, they, they all got around this pool. And they were waiting. And the Bible says that one time a year, an angel came down and stirred the waters. And whoever got into the pool first got healed of whatever they had. Now, I know the doctrinal application of that. I know the man there is a type of the nation of Israel. He had his infirmity 38 years. If you study it out, that's how long Israel wandered in the wilderness. I get all that. But when you look at that from a practical standpoint, you know that's exactly where churches are today and most of God's people are today. Most churches are just sitting around the Bible waiting for God to do something. There's no, there's no, no passion in their life to get something going. And, and, and many Christians are the same way. They go to church every week. They go to church Thursday night, Sunday morning. Nothing ever changes in their life. There's no passion. There's no excitement. They look at going to church like most people look at going to the dentist. There, there's, no real, there's no real purpose to it. And these people were laying around this pool, just waiting for somebody to come down and, 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 and stir the waters that they might get healed. Most Christians of most churches are just laying around the church, waiting for God to come down and give them a revival. We get the mindset that, uh, that uh, you know, you find many, many churches, you know, they're going to have a, they're going to have a, they're going to have revival. You see them all the time down to revival services, you know. I mean, November 5th to November 10th, come to revival. We're, like, you can actually schedule in with God when revival is going to come. It's the stupidest stuff I ever saw in your life. And, and life, life can be hard. That's right. And it's a thing where, you know, they just, they just think that it, you know, I'll tell you the best way. I, I, the difference between, now, if you're a visitor here, maybe you haven't seen this yet. If you're out of fellowship and you're here this morning, you couldn't see it. But you know what? This church, for the most part, lives in a state of revival. There's always something going on. There's always somebody's life changing. Always some God coming down and doing something. We have never had a revival, sir, and probably won't. I'll probably never schedule in some guy to come in and say, we're going to have revival next week. Revival isn't about a meeting that you set. Revival starts in your heart with what God is doing. And when he's not doing anything, I can bring in the greatest preacher in the world and there'll still be no revival. We just sit around the pool waiting for God to come down and stir the waters. Oh, waiting for God to come down and do something. I'm going to tell you something. The vision in your life with what God is doing, the thing that will keep a church alive and keep a church within revival and keep it always moving is what God is doing in your life and that He is doing something and you're passionate about it. We don't need any more dead Baptists. We don't need anybody who just walks around like they're mad at the world and, and God's not doing anything, but all oh, they're saved and they go to church. But so what? So what if you do all of those things if God's power is not in your life? Then I told you the process, the fourth thing, of defining the vision was found in Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 13. And I gave you, remember, nine, I think it was nine key areas on the vision. The, the fact of all, you've got to give the vision to your family on your watch. You're the watch care for their souls. We talked about the, giving, the, uh, giving the vision on, the, on your watch, but on your tower, how that was a picture of building your family and your life on solid biblical principles that you and your family and your children 
live above the circumstances. How do you ever expect your children to live above the circumstances if you yourself cannot live above the circumstances? Many times we, we, we cannot do things ourselves. We want our children to be better than us. So we require our children to do things that we haven't done ourselves. That's one of the most foolish things you could ever do. You have to lead by example. We, we talked about watching and hearing what God is saying to you. And then your response to it. Changing about you whatever has to be changed to come in line with the vision of God. Then we talked about the fifth thing was to write the vision. To lay it out. Have your children know what God's plan is for this family. On no uncertain terms. Most kids do not understand how God figures in their family's life because they never see it figured in mom and dad's life. I'm just being honest today. And so uh, we have to make it, we have to write the vision. And then the sixth thing was to make it plain upon the tables. And I showed you how that that's the tables of your child's heart. Instilling in them what God is doing in the family because of what he's doing in mom and dad's life. The passion that he says that they see in your life that nothing, there may be a lot of other things that you do that are fun, that are good, that are wholesome, that are great. But they see the passion for the things of God as number one. And then we talked about that, that uh, when he uh, saw the vision that you write out and you make it plain upon the tables and then that he can run that readeth it. He runs with that passion. He sees every opportunity of God as, as the most important thing in his life and he's aggressive toward the things of God. It says that the vision for an appointed time we talked about that, how God, God has a plan, that God will bring it about in His own time through His promises. The ninth thing was wait for it. It will not tarry, but it will come in the Lord's time. And we saw a biblical process of spiritual growth that God, through that time, will reinforce His vision in your child's life through your family. Not through the church. Not through me. Not through the youth pastor. Not through camp. Through your family. Now today, I, I, I want to pull all of this material together, and I want to leave with you a really good, solid, workable plan for you today. I want you to go out of here today with all of the tools that you need, and as I said, I, I'll, I'll help you however I can. We have Thursday night Bible study. You can ask whatever you want. You always have access to me. But you have, you now have a valuable format to put into your family. Uh, you have, first of all, these lessons, and many of you are, are actively sitting down every week and going through that or get the reports back. That is the greatest single thing that you can begin to do in your family. We have children's discipleship lessons that are close to being finished based on ours, but for your kids, that's the next step you could do in getting those lessons and, 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 and taking your kids through those. Many of you, many of you are well enough equipped with the Bible that you can just become creative with your own thing that you want to do with your kids. You can take the stories in the Bible and break them down. Get the Bible storybooks out of the bookstore. But once you've got it going, keep it going. Don't back off on it. Don't think now because I'm done on Sunday, you're done. You're not. I'm done. You're just starting. And I want to tell you something else. If I were you, I go through these lessons and I'd make me a quick ready reference guide to all the key things. 
You know how you, when you buy a phone, you get this book that's that thick on instructions? Or you buy anything? But they always now, for me, it's always great. Then now they give you a quick startup. Just a little card, maybe two or three pages. Tells you the key features that you don't have to read that book. You just get the quick startup and you're up, you're up in business. That's what you need to do with this. In the back of my Bible, not this one, but the one I use for Bible study, I have a quick reference for almost every subject that you can imagine. It doesn't take much. I don't have to take a whole page. Sometimes I do. But I, just, I have a quick reference for almost everything that I could ever imagine that anybody would ever ask me if I can't remember it myself. I have a quick reference on music. I have a quick reference on children. I have a quick reference on history. I have a quick reference on the nation of Israel. I have a quick reference on the wars that they fought. I have a quick reference about everything that I thought was vital that instead of me having to peel through all this material, I just go to my quick ready, my quick startup. Here I am. That's what you need to do with this. You know, I think some of you ladies would be really good at doing this. And if we get a really good one, then we'll, we'll make copies of it and we'll pass it out for people. But, you know, you need to have a reference of the terms, some of the key verses, you know, some of the key concepts that we, we work through. And you can get at a glance that will just make everything kind of, there it is, right there, a ready reference, a quick glance, that you don't have to keep pouring over all this. When I always did it, I always used and I put things down that would trigger my mind to the next place I had to go that I never had to write down. Therefore, I could just do eight or nine things, but if I had to teach somebody, I could go for 10 hours and 45 minutes on just those eight or nine things because they'll open up avenues to the next place I got to go that I know that I don't have to write down. Things like that. Get a, ready, get a really good one, as I said. Just see what you can do with that. And some of you ladies, you know, ought to really be good at that. Now, in closing today, I, I want to give you seven areas that you will build along with the vision in your life. And I call these the seven absolutes to parenting. And I know I've given you a lot of seven things, five things, and nine things, but, but uh, that's what you got to do. You got to break things down. You'll remember that your teaching and your training were about giving your child the vision of a life with God. You want to give and instill in your child the vision of God through your teaching and your training, that that child will never, never entertain the thought of what it would be like with a life without God. And I'll tell you something else. They'll never entertain the idea and thought of what a life would be out without his mom and their mom and dad there. You build those things the right way and nobody will pull them out of your family or out of the relationship with God. You know, most of you young people don't know this. Some of you older guys will. Uh, used to be when you bought a car, went to the dealership. Now you just go and there's 500 cars on the lot. And you can find whatever you want. Or if you don't find it, they'll call around the world and find it and get it to you. Right? They'll bring it to you. It never used to be that way. My dad in 1960 bought a, my dad was a Pontiac man. And he always bought Pontiacs. I remember as a young kid, he had a 55 Pontiac. Now, I was only five years old at that time. But I remember that Pontiac, big old boat. <laughs> and he liked Bonnevilles. I don't even know if they still have Pontiac Bonneville. But he liked Bonnevilles. He liked the Venturas. Me, as I got older, I was a GTO man myself. But anyway, see, most of you don't even know what a GTO is. That's okay. 
But you know when you went in to buy a car, you didn't just buy it off the lot. What you went in and you went in there and they sat down with the guy you, you, and you told him what you wanted. You said, I, I want white, I want this, I want that, I want... And, and you would give them what you wanted and then they would send that off to Pontiac, Michigan or wherever they built it and they would custom build the car that you wanted. You just didn't go on there and say, oh yeah, this is the one I want. You maybe only had what cars were in the showroom. And you got to see one, but then you had to sit down and order it, and it probably took eight weeks to get your car in some places. I remember when we first got our new car, they told us, you know, you drive it for a little while, and then park it at home, and it probably won't start for a while, uh, because the engine will swell up, but it'll loosen up as a, boy, you get up your car now, you can drive it as much as you want. Things have changed. But you used to have to go in and you used to get a custom car. You used to tell them exactly what you wanted. I want this on it. I don't want this. I want this car. I want these kind of wheels. I want that. I want all this stuff in here. And then they would send it off to the factory. It'd come down the assembly line. The guy would custom build your car. Well, okay. What I'm giving you is for you to be able to custom build your child. Put everything in you want to be in there as they come down the assembly line of life. Being able to add the things that you want him to have in his life or her. Being able to put those things in their world. Ordering him up, putting them in. That When they come off the assembly line, you have your dream car or your dream child, which will fit into your dream family. You build these seven areas I'm about to give you as you go through the five stages of the spiritual growth uh, as your child develops. And you'll, you know, you'll see some difference in the thing. Now, let me talk about the first one here, and we've got some things we want to look at today, so we want to, we want to, we want to move along here. <clears throat> uh, the first thing that you want to understand about the key of parenting is that you always want to define the boundaries in your child's life. Your child has to have boundaries. They have to have parameters. They have to have limitations of what they can do and where they can go. And you, the parent, have to set those boundaries. But the thing that you want to do, and there's two things that you've got to be vital. First of all, the boundaries have to be legitimate. They have to be based on biblical principles. Because if your child down the line asks why, why, why not, you want to be able to always fall back on the Word of God and give them the principles. You want to establish their boundaries uh, in the Word of God. Now, let me say this to you, and this is just as important, if not more important. You want to establish these boundaries, listen to me, you want to establish these boundaries before you have to deal with them and correct them on something they did wrong. They need to know what the rules are. A parent who doesn't ever communicate to his kids what the boundaries are, but the parent has them in his mind, but never tells the kids, and then the kid violates them, and then you come down on him when you never gave him the, never gave him the wherewithal to, um, to understand what the boundaries were in the first place. It's just that simple. You have to let them know exactly uh, uh, what you expect from them long before you have to correct them in it. And then you always fall back on the principles. Whatever happens with your family, whatever happens when you set these boundaries down, once you establish them in their lives, before you have to hold them accountable, this will be in the discipline stage and a relationship stage very early, then you always can fall back on the principles as they get older. And I'm telling you, the number one thing is you have to always have to define the boundaries and the limitations with biblical principles. 
Now the second thing. You have to hold the line of accountability and responsibility in your child's life through discipline. And I cannot stress this enough. Teach them personal responsibility and personal accountability. Discipline in a family has to be a dual discipline. Mom and dad have to be on the same page. They have to work together. And I know that some of you have children in your marriage, and we talked about this the other night. I forget what night it was. Somebody asked about blended families where you have a a spouse that is not biologically uh, the father or the mother of the kid, but yet they live in the house, and you have to have some kind of form of discipline. And I'm telling you right now, if mom and dad don't get on the same page and understand themselves what they want to do in disciplining your child, don't you think for a moment your kid will figure it out if you don't know what you're doing. And that becomes a major, major, major problem. A child needs to see, a child needs to see strong, decisive, leaving no doubt in anybody's mind who's in charge where accountability lies. And if you don't do that together, they'll play one against the other. They'll play both ends against the middle. You know the, you know the, the old scenario that we always joke about, you know. A kid will come up and say to his dad, who's busy watching something on TV, and he says, Dad, uh, 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 can I go here? And the dad, because he doesn't want to do his job and he's busy with the ball game, whatever, he'll say, go ask your mother. And so the kid will go over to the mother and say, Mom, uh, can I go here? I asked Dad, and he said it was okay if it was okay with you. That's how they play it. If there's anything I've learned in over 45 years in ministry, the kids are a lot smarter than you, the parents, unless you're operating by the principles. The principles will save your hide every time. And, you know, you, you have to be able to, they have to know who's in charge. You know, teaching them a key understanding of a great principle in life that you hear me give them all the time that comes down with accountability and responsibility. You are not responsible. You need to tell your kid that. Your kid needs to understand it. You need to understand it. There will be things in your life, there will be times in your life when things come into your world that are not very good, that you have to deal with or cause you great concern or cause you great problems, that you had nothing to do with what happened. You didn't sin and now you're in trouble for this or you didn't violate the principles of God and now this is happening. In life, you're going to get the short end of the stick most of the time. These charismatic radio stations and these charismatic uh, dial-a-prayer places, you know, where, or dial-a-verse, you know, where you get up in the morning and you dial-a-verse and it says a nice candy, soap, candy, plastic voice comes on there and says, this is the day the Lord has made. Let us be glad and rejoice. And you're supposed to get through your day on that. That's not even reality. It may be true, but it isn't reality. Now, if I was doing those things and you called my number, here's what you'd get. Yeah, this is the day the Lord God has made, and you're going to get it in the neck. So you better stay close to the book. Have a nice day in Jesus' name. <laughs> Your kid needs to understand one of the greatest single principles about victory in your life as a Christian. 
You are not always responsible for the things in life that come your way that are the bad things. Things will happen. We live in a world filled with sin. We live in a world that hates everything about God and they're going to hate you. You're going to get up every morning and the world is going to be against you. It's going to be against your child. And there'll be times when you don't sin. Not too many, but there'll be times. There'll be times when you and I don't sin, that, that we have absolutely no, nothing, no reason why this happened to me, and I'm not responsible for this. But you need to realize and understand and teach your children, you may not be responsible for it coming into your world, but you are responsible and accountable how you deal with it. Your kids need to understand that. They need to have an understanding of accountability and responsibility through discipline. You teach them that when the bad things in life happen, that they're not, had no part in, just like you have to teach them when the bad things happen that they are part of. You have to teach them that they have to respond to those things instead of reacting to those things. They have to use the principles to filter out what is coming their way. Or it'll knock them down every time. Teaching them this vital concept will keep your child from playing the victim role. And boy, do we like to play the victim role today. I met people all of my ministry and all my life that wanted to complain about the situations they were in. They wanted to complain about their husband. They wanted to complain about their wife. They wanted to complain about their kids. They wanted to complain about everything on this planet. But at the end of the day, at the end of the day, they did not, they did not want to take responsibility and deal with whatever it was. It was funner to play the victim. And I'll tell you, you're going to find you're going to find Christian people who like to play the victims. I, I deal with them all the time. They're in a bad, horrendous situation. They hate it. They want to complain about it, but they'll never do anything about it. I, I've seen, I've dealt with women who were in abusive relationships with their husband, and their husband would do terrible things to them, say terrible things to them, physical abuse, and yet they'd stay in that thing for five, ten, fifteen, twenty years. Uh, you try to deal with them and try to get them to, to try to do what they need to do to try to fix the situation. And, you know, most people don't realize, and I say this to women because women usually find, I don't, I mean, I'm sure that there are men out there who are in an abusive relationship with their wives. I, 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 that's probably true, but not like it is with the reverse. Most women don't know this. If you're saved and you're a Christian, no matter what bad situation you're in, you have more control over it than he does. You may not see that. You may not understand that. You may not get that. But I'm telling you right now, if you're a saved woman and you're in an abusive relationship with a guy, uh, you have the upper hand. The problem is we get playing the victim status so much, we never want to play the upper hand. Because the upper hand can be a hard hand to play. I, I, tell, I, I, I tell women all the time, you know, well, my husband beats me around. And I said, how many times have you been in jail? Well, I've called the police several times. But, you know, then I, I get soft-hearted and, you know, I just can't. You're, you're, send him to jail. Send him to jail. Well, everybody will know. Everybody needs to know. Well, I'm afraid that it'll, it'll everybody, it, it, you, sometimes you have to take everything away from somebody before they're willing to deal with their problem. And it's just a situation where they're, they're, you, you, you cannot allow your child to play the victim. 
You have to teach them responsibility and accountability. The bad choices we make will never be somebody else's fault. And yet I see parents all the time. Well, my kid's this way because of this kid. My kid's this way because of something happened at church. My kid's this way because there were some mean people at church that said nasty things about him. And now he never wants to go to church again. You did a terrible job of raising your kid. What's he going to do when he gets in the workforce? And the supervisor doesn't like him. Or the person in the next cubicle, are they going to quit? Are they going to not work for the rest of their life because there's people out there that may talk about them? When are we going to realize that we, we can't always deal and be responsible for the bad things that happen, but we are responsible how we deal with them? And biblical principles will get you through every time. I do not know of a situation, a scenario, or a circumstance, no matter what you come up with, that I couldn't take you to the Word of God and show you how to deal with it and how to work your way through it. That's what the Bible's for. Bad choices we make will never be somebody else's fault. We own them. And teaching your child and training your child to take ownership of their bad choices... We, we must pay the price for our own bad choices. We can never send the bill to somebody else. If it's your bad choice and my bad choice, then it belongs to me. Life is about choices. Make as many good ones as you can. Make as few bad ones as you can. But you own the bad ones. And parents, don't, don't pay it for them. Boy, do I see that. Well, your kid makes the bad choice, but oh, you love them so much. You care for them so much. You'll take from them the only thing that will ever fix them, if there was any fixing at all, and that is the hardline reality. If you did it, you did it, now you've got to pay the price for it. JFK said one time, Josh Fitzgerald Kennedy, I never forgot it. Uh, he, he said it in a speech one time over the, over the Cuban uh, uh, crisis when they tried to invade Cuba back there and the CIA lied to him. And he, and they, he, he got up and he said, you know what? <clears throat> Success has many fathers, but failure is always an orphan. And you know what? Everybody likes to make good choices, but it's the bad choices we have to be responsible. I, we love being responsible for the good choices. But we also have to be responsible for the bad ones. And you're, you, you have to teach your child the accountability and responsibility through discipline. That if they make a bad choice, it's their choice. They have to lose what they have to lose. They have to pay whatever price they have to pay. And you teach them this vital concept and they'll never go around playing the victim. Woe is me. Oh, why am I in this situation? You're in this situation because you chose to be in this situation. And you're in this situation because you choose to stay in this situation. That's why you're in this situation. Nobody shackles you down in a basement and locks you to a, a door someplace. Nobody makes you do this. Nobody makes you keep that relationship. Nobody makes you do that. You made a bad choice. You're in a bad situation. And you choose not to do what you can do. That's the way it is. The fifth thing, <clears throat> use any disobedience as a teaching tool. And you want to understand this. And the great model for this is Hebrews chapter 12, verses 5 through 11. 
Uh, always in any discipline uh, and correction, uh, the motto is Christ and me and you as his son. He says in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 5 through 11, And ye have forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as unto children. My son, despise not the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. If ye endure chastening, God dealeth with you as with sons. For what son is he whom the Father chasteneth not? But if ye be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, then you are bastards and you're not sons. You're not really saved is what he's saying. Furthermore, we have had fathers of our flesh which corrected us, and we gave them reverence. Shall we not much rather be in subjection unto the Father of spirits and live? For they, your earthly mom and dad, for a few days chastened us after their own pleasure, but he for our profit, that we might be partakers of his holiness. Now that's a great principle, and that's a great model for you dealing in, in disobedience with your children. The model for discipline and chastisement will be our relationship with God as a father and son relationship. Verse 10 says that the chastisement in my life is for my profit. God doesn't do it to hurt me. You don't chastise your child to hurt them. You realize that as the parent, you have the responsibility to teach them what's right. The second thing he says there in verse 10 is that we might be partakers of his holiness. You discipline your child and you chastise your child, and you do that because of the overall vision of the family. You want that child to be part of the process and the plan and the vision that God has. And we need to have correction in our family and chastisement in our family, just like we do in the family of God with He is my Heavenly Father and me as the child. The end result of any and all disobedience should be restoration and forgiveness. That's the way it is with God. Never leave a child hanging out there after you discipline them. Never leave them out there after you chastise them. They need to know that the chastisement and the discipline is part of the vision. It's part of everything that they have to go through. Just like God requires it of you in your relationship with Him, you have to require it in them. Why? So chastisement for our profit. Why? That we might be partakers of His holiness. These are the things you need to instill in our hearts. Now, along with five and number six is... is knowing when to spank. We've talked about this on, I think it was New Year's Eve. <clears throat> Proverbs 19, 18 says, Chasten thy son uh, uh, while there is hope, and, and spare not thy soul for his crying. In other words, don't be deterred from when you've got to give him a whipping, when you've got to deal with him on what we call corporal punishment. Proverbs 13, 24 says, He who spareth the rod hateth his child. Because uh, we, uh, it, is, it, it isn't about love. Love is about truth. And when a child disobeys and a child gets to the point where something corrective needs to happen, if you don't take that measure of chastisement. I mean, who of us here have not been taken to the woodshed with God? Why should you spare your child that when you know how good it works for you? Now, obviously, I gave you four no-brainers. Everything's a little different here, but a child that lies, a child that is in rebellion, a child, Bible says that rebellion is as a sin of witchcraft. You can't, you can't, you can't, you can't support that. Willful disobedience and obviously hurting others. Those are four primary examples. And, you know, there's lots of things, and you've got to be able to 
tell when, when it is these things. And we're going to talk about that here in a little bit. But I, I gave you five steps of chastisement that you want to follow through. And when you have to go through this level with your child and you have to go through the corporal punishment stage, then there's these things are what you want to be able to do. And this is a plan. First of all, communication. They have to know what they did wrong. If you've already laid the foundation and you've already got the boundary set, you're good to go. If you don't, now you're in trouble. Let's say that you do. Let's say you've done everything right up to this point. Now you communicate to them what you did was wrong. Now, then your next thing is application. Now you, you, you show them the biblical principle that's involved. You not only tell them what they did wrong, now you're going to line it up against the Bible of why, uh, why it is wrong. And then explanation. Now you tell them, okay, based on what you have done and what the Bible says, now this is what I've got to do. And the fourth one is execution. Not literally. Then you've got to perform the capital, capital punishment, the corporal punishment. <clears throat> and then the fifth thing is restoration. You bring them back in line and now you restore the fellowship that was broken because of the act. And now, just like with you and God, you restore that fellowship. You love them. You put your arm around them. You pray. You laugh. You hug them. You tell them how important they are. But you also reinforce, I'm not going to allow you to do that ever again. And when you do, I want you to know, we'll be back here again. But I love you so much because I want you to be everything God wants you to be. And just by God, how God keeps me between a white line, by going to Sunday morning and Pastor Bob let me have it when he preaches the Word of God, i got to follow the same thing with you. Now, it goes without saying, let me say this, and just drives me nuts. When it comes to chastisement of your child and corporal punishment, you, you, never, you never hit your child. You never slap them. You never give them a backhand. You never hit them in the head or the face, or you never kick them. Uh, you, 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 and you, you just—that's not the way you do it. You know that just—that just produces resentment, and it shows how stupid you are and what a bully you are. It's a thing where that's never the way you deal with it. That is nothing biblical about any of that. And I'll tell you something else: don't belittle them. Don't call them names. Don't say you're really stupid. Don't, don't tell them how dumb they are. Don't, don't belittle them by, by, by degrading them, by talking to them, condescending, and, and calling them names. Don't bully your kid. And I want to tell you something. Some fathers are the biggest bullies you ever saw in your life. There has to be an understanding of how you deal with them when it comes to this level, knowing when to spank and knowing how to spank. And knowing what you want to accomplish with it. And this caveman style, big tough guy, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just, that doesn't cut it. Doesn't cut it with anybody, least of all me. Then lastly, you got to know that you are the key. In parenting, you want to remember a couple of things. First of all, you want to remember that, as I said, you are the key. First of all, you want to remember the word consistency. But see, these are some of the key words you could put in your, your ready reference. Consistency in all things. That's the key. You have to be consistent in whatever you do. Inconsistency drives me nuts. It just drives me nuts. You have to be consistent. 
The second thing is you have to reinforce all of this constantly. That's part of the consistency. And then the vision for their life will start and end with you. Inconsistent parents will produce inconsistent kids. Lazy parents will produce lazy kids. Undisciplined parents will produce undisciplined kids. Parents who procrastinate and everything will produce kids that procrastinate. It's just that simple. These seven areas are the key part of everything that you do within those five stages. And it all builds toward the vision. I told you two key words, and you ought to put these down in your ready guide. Train and teach. Remember those two words, to train and to teach. Here it comes. You train with the Bible and its principles, but you teach by your life examples. I'm going to say it again. You train them with the biblical principles, but you teach them by your life examples as parents. And don't you ever forget that. Don't you ever forget it. And your inconsistency, your procrastination, and all of the undisciplined parents in the world will produce that same mindset in their kids. They hear from you, but they always need to see it from you too. It's like I said last week, television. You got to tell it, but you got to see the vision. You can hear it from you, but they got to see it in you. And from what the Bible says and what I've learned through dealing with families over the years, I can tell you that the best parents are those who excel in just three basic things. And this is all incorporated in everything. Number one, parents who are superb designers and organizers of their child's events with the Bible and the world and produce a good balance. That's the first thing. Uh, custom building your child, as we said. The Bible, I mean, you've got to have a balance. You can't have your kid just stay in the Bible 24-7. They've got to play ball. They want to interact. They, they want to do all of those things. But you, as the parents, have to orchestrate that. You have to be the designer of that. You can't allow your child to design their own structure in life. The Bible has to always come out on top. They need to see, no matter what they're doing in life, the key number one, and there's nothing wrong with those things, but they need to see that the number one fundamental key above everything they're doing in life is the Word of God and the family and the structure and the principles that God has for them. They need to have a higher calling than just whatever they're doing in school. And I think what they do in school is absolutely vital. But if it's out of balance, it'll be out of balance uh, in their life. And if you are out of balance with your kid, let me just tell you, always be out of balance on the Bible side. Always designing and organizing life through the book, through the Word of God, not around the Word of God. And I, I, I'll tell you the, ne the next thing, uh, uh, that, that parenting, a direct interaction with the little things in their life. Uh, it's a thing where, you know, most parents will do the big things in life. But paying attention when they want to show you something or tell you something, and you've had a hard day at work and you're sitting down and watching the television or you're reading something or even in your Bible, let me tell you something. Let me tell you what you need to do. Turn off the television, close your Bible, and listen to what they got to say. Give them the attention that they're looking for, that you are reinforcing. Put that in your little quick guide. You're reinforcing that 
they're the most important thing in the world. And what they have to say is important to you. Don't say, ah, get me later. Don't say, well, I'm, I'm just tired. Don't get upset because it irritates you that your child wants to come and show you something, but the game's almost over and it's down, it's tied, and you want to know who wins. Shut it off. Win the game, lose the child. You figure it out. Paying attention when they want to show you something or tell you something. Never being too busy. Stop what you're doing, put it down, turn it off, and give them the attention that they need. Having them understand that they are the most important thing in your world. And you don't do that by just saying, you're the most important thing in my world. You do that by whenever they come to you, shutting it down, stopping, and giving them your undivided attention. And then the other thing that I think makes great parenting is a strong show of discipline while showing and verbalizing and displaying a great love and affection for them. Telling your child a hundred times a day, I love you so much. You know, I've never understood this. Honestly, I grew up in a family where I, in all my life, and maybe this is why I am the way I am, that I, 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 I grew up with my mom and my dad. I don't ever remember a time when my mom and dad ever told me they loved me. Now, I know that they did. I know they did. They sacrificed tremendously for me. My dad worked two, three jobs. My mom worked two jobs. They, they provided everything for us. I, I, I'm, not, I'm not saying anything at that. But it, it was hard. It was as, as, as sweet as my dad was. I wish you could know my dad. I'm a lot like my dad. My dad was easygoing. My dad, you know, the word I'd say, hey, buddy, that was my dad's word. Everybody was buddy to him. And I just picked it up, you know, and he was the most easygoing. He never met a, he never, he never got upset. He never got angry. He, he got along with everybody. He, he was just a nice guy. Now, my mom, on the other hand, was something else. They named a tank division after her. Its motto was a tank, and it said, hell on wheels. <coughs> Not with my mom. My mom was something else. But all my life, I, I, I don't ever remember one time that they ever, looked at me and said, Bob, I love you. Uh, and, and I think I, I grew up, uh, and it, well, if that did anything for me, it, 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 I, I saw it, the fact that, that that's what I really wanted. And I see that, that that's what most people really want. And I, I tell my kids a, a thousand times a day, I love them. Uh, when they were growing up, I wasn't the best father in the world. I probably wasn't a very good father, but I always told them that I loved them. And I, I always tell you guys I love you. I don't want anybody that God's put in my world to go through one day for you bumping each other that I don't tell you and let you know that I love you. And I'm telling you, you got to do it with your kids. You dad, and for some reason, it's always hard for dads, you know, big, tough dad, you know, big, to look at their boy and say, I really love you. I mean, you can show them how to bat the ball. You can show them how to run the bases. You can show them how to snap the ball, throw the pass. You can play catch with them, kick the ball, shoot hoops with them. But you just can't take them out and put your arm around them and say, you know what? I really love you. That'll mean more to that child than all the training you've given him to be a soccer player, a baseball player, a basketball player, or whatever. The bottom line is you've got to be able to say to him and put your arm around him when, for no reason, and not one of these things, oh, I love you. No, put your arms around him and her and just simply say, I want you to know. I want you to know how much I love you. A hundred times a day. A hundred times a day. Uh, because it's the fact, you know what? Because that's what God does for you. God tells you and shows you a thousand times a day how much he loves you. 
You know, we said, now you know that's true, because we'd all be dead if he didn't. Yeah. Always making them feel special, because they are special. Their security will come from a, from a warm, loving, kind, affectionate relationship that they see in, in the home. In mom and dad first, and then as you build into that, into their comfort zone, into their world, that they say, I don't ever want to leave this home. I don't ever. My girls could have stayed in my home if they wouldn't have gotten me. In fact, after they got married, they both stayed there for a while, and it was okay with me. <laughs> I see some parents that want their kids right out there as soon as they're out of 18, you're out. Get out of here. You're out of your mind. And that's your call if you want to. Maybe you're not out of your mind. You're just demented. I can't speak for you. You can do whatever you want to do. I, I would have had my kids live with me forever. I wouldn't have had to mow the yard. I wouldn't have to do the snow. I'd have to take the dogs out. Man, God, it would have been heaven on earth. I never wanted them to leave. They did leave, and then they went to buy a house or build a house, and then they moved back in. I didn't care. They could have stayed there all they wanted. That didn't bother me. It was fun time. It was, it was, it was never a time when I said, I wish my kids were not here. Well, I, never, I hope it never comes to a place in your life as a parent where you say that about your kid. Because you know what? I'll tell you what will happen. Sometime they'll get out there in the world and the world will take them from you and you'll sit in your living room and you'll say, I wish they were here tonight. That home needs to be their safe place. I was at Quick Trip the other day and there was a sign on there that said safe place. That if a kid got, you could run in there. That's what your home needs to be. It needs to be a place where your kid can run to you, mom or dad, run to that home and know that they're protected there, they're safe there, that they have your undivided attention. And that's the number one issue with kids today as far as I'm concerned. There's no comfort zone. No safe haven in the home. They suffer the emotional trauma of mom and dad's bad choices. In most cases, mom and dad go through divorces, multiple divorces. They go through fighting. They have to endure anger. They have to deal with an abusive relationship. Mom and dad make the bad choices, but ultimately it's the kids that pay the price for it. And mom and dad never even see it because they're so caught up in their own drama. It's like a Saturday night motion picture and the leading characters are mom and dad. Big, bold letters, starring mom and dad and all the little people that are part of the movie to make it a success. Hardly read their names. Mom and dad are so caught up in their own drama they don't see the damage it does to the kids. Now, I'm just going to say this. This is, has nothing to do with anything that's in my sermon, but I just feel I want to say this because we've got a lot of single people here. And probably people listen online. Make really good choices when you find a husband or a wife. Don't marry some deadbeat husband. Don't marry some deadbeat wife. The last thing you want to do is find yourself in a marriage that a year down the line or six years down the line, what you thought was the picture on the box, somebody changed the contents. I want to tell you something. The whole realization, the whole putting together and fulfillment of God's plan in your family's life will depend on who mom and dad hook up with. 
It's just that simple. That Bible has all the principles. That one bad choice can end a life with God for your children for all of eternity. And I'm telling you, the frivolous way we pick a mate, we get everything else in front of what we should get it in front of. We listen to what they say, they tell us, but we never see the vision. Don't ever marry somebody who tells you they're going to do what's right with God after you get married. Walk them down to Best Buy, watch through the, walk, and they want to marry you. Walk hand in hand down Best Buy, go to the electronics section, and look at those big screen TVs that are all blaring on different stations and say, which one are you? I hear what you say, where's the vision? I've not seen the vision. You say you want, we want to find it together. I'm not looking for somebody to find it together with. I'm looking for somebody who's already got it. I'm not looking for somebody who's going to look to me for the vision. I'm looking for somebody who's got it and I'll support them. And I know this, I'm going to say this, as a single parent, I get it. Some of you are in situations where you have a husband or a wife who doesn't, you know, want to, you know, you're by yourself in the thing. Or some of you are married in a scenario where your other spouse doesn't care anything about God. And you're in that, honestly, you're in that because of no fault of your own. You got married long before you heard anything about the Bible. No blame can be attributed to you. Please do not take anything I'm saying and take it personal and anybody castigating you of the situation you're found in. There's enough people out there who knew better than made bad choices, but you're going to find people who come to this church after they're already in it. And now they find the truth. I'm going to tell you something. That's what this church is here for you for. It's always something you can do. If you're a woman, we've got all kinds of women that will be your support and help you get you through it. There will be some hard things you have to deal with, but you won't have to deal with them by yourself. If you're a husband and your wife is an abusive woman and throws you down the cellar steps and do all those things to you, let me tell you something. We've got some guys here. You know what I'm saying. This church exists for one reason. One reason only, that is to give you the truth about everything in life. At different times, we'll give you different truth about different things, but it all comes down and boils down to the same thing. You need to have the truth about every issue in life that you have to face as a child of God. And this church exists for one reason, that is to give you the truth. I won't tell what you want to hear. I won't blow smoke up your whatever. I will give you exactly the truth, exactly the way it is. You'll either like it or not like it. I'll love you whether you like me back or not. That's not the issue. The issue for me is not whether you like me or not. The issue for me is that I give you the truth. That's all I care about. And I know it's really hard and it can, but there's always something that can be done. But I'm telling you, young singles, we have a host of them here, and you're getting to that ripe age now where you're going to be 22 and you're not married yet, and you're going to worry about your being an old widow someplace along the line. Just make sure, make sure, prove all things. Look for the things. Let me help you. Let me help you. I, I'm here to help you in every aspect of your, of your life and your, and, and, and as it put together. But I'm telling you, that one bad choice will be the 
worst bad choice ever make in your life. And not only will you pay the price of it and be happy the rest of your life, but so will your kids. If it isn't together on the same page, you're in trouble. You're in trouble. Doesn't mean you can't make it work, but it means you're going to have to work awfully hard. Now, before I close here, I would be admiss if I didn't, I didn't say something about this. I want to give you, I know, say you're in a situation, if you're listening to here on the YouTube or whatever, say you're in a situation where you've already lost your child. They're already gone. They're out in the world. And uh, I, I, I want to I give, give you some steps on, on getting your child back when you lose them. Now, I have a biblical principle or a story that, that sets every one of my teachings, and I would call this the prodigal son syndrome, based on Luke chapter 15. And I want you to know that when you reach to this place in your life, that it requires extreme measures. There's no easy way here. I've told parents before that find themselves in this situation, and this is true of marriages and it's true of families with kids. Sometimes the situation is so screwed up. Sometimes the situation is so bad. You can't do the right thing. That sounds weird, doesn't it? You should hear me say we always do the right thing. Sometimes you'll put yourself in situations where the right thing is not an option anymore. So you're left with the choice of, of, of the lesser of two evils, so to speak. And I'll tell you right now, you never want to find yourself in that situation. But I've seen many parents that they can't do the right thing with their kids anymore. Kids don't want to hear it. The example of that is Lot. Lot was down in Sodom and Gomorrah. God comes down and says, we're going to destroy this place. Get your family out of here. He goes and tells them that the Lord is going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, knocks on their door, and the Bible says that they, they, they looked at him like one that mocked God. You know what his problem was? right thing was taken off the table. You know what he had to do? He had to load up his two daughters and his wife in the station wagon and leave the other kids there to be burned to death and burned in hell for eternity in the, in the ashes of Gomorrah. Think about that for a while. We always tell the story. We don't think about that. He had to walk away and leave those kids in that house and not 10 hours later, fire hell came down from heaven and burned them like a torch. And he escaped. That's the deal. Some of you parents are going to escape and you're going to go to heaven and your kid's going to burn in hell. That's the model. That's the model. You don't like it? Then rip that part out of your Bible. I'll tell you the truth. Amen. That's the Bible. That's the truth. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 5 says, To deliver such a one unto the Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. And, and I want to say this to you. An understanding. In these things here now, there's no, there's no guarantee. There's no guarantee that somebody's going to come back. The damage may be too much done. But God can still get the honor and glory in any scenario. If you don't know that, then you don't know much about the Bible. But I'll tell you, no matter what you can and what you can't do, it's never too late for the parent to start doing what's right. If they're saved. And, I, and I'm just telling you, I, these can be very tough and they can be very hard. All right, let's look at the first one. The first thing I would tell you to do if you've lost your child, this is part of the reason why you lost them, I would tell you to stop enabling them. Quit making excuses for them. 
Quit blaming others for your failure as a parent or a father or a mother. Quit bailing them out of trouble. Quit paying their bills. Quit doing their laundry. Quit giving them a place to live. Quit getting them a lawyer when this is their fifth DWI. You know, we say we believe the Bible, but I wonder how much time we really do. Because we as parents do some of the dumbest stuff that are so out of character with the Bible. You know, in, the, in Luke chapter 15 with the prodigal son, you know, you know, you know that story. I'm not going to read it to you, but you know what happens. He comes into his dad, just like a lot of your kids did and they, and with you, and he says, you know what? I'm done. I'm going out. The world's calling me. Man, I'm going to party, 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 and I want my inheritance. I'm going to get me a vet. I'm going to get me two hot women. I'm going to get, I'm going to party. I am going to have a great time. Dad gave him the inheritance. Here, off he goes. And I'm sure, Bible didn't tell this part of the story, but I can, I can put in the details here because I've seen it unfold many, many times. I'm sure as long as his money hung out, his friends hung out. I'm sure as long as he could put gas in that vet and burn rubber down the streets, the women were just flocking to get in that car. I'm sure that as long as his money hung out and he was the most popular guy around, well, you know what he wound up? He wound up with the pigs. And he doesn't have anything to eat. He's taking care of the pigs, and he's eating what the pigs eat. Now, let me, get, let me ask you a question. What do you do with the Bible? You parents who want to fix your kid every way you can. Do you see his dad hearing that his son is down down there and he's lost all of his money and he's on some farm and he's down there living in a pigsty with the mud and the pig crap and eating the food and the trough and the slop and the pigs and how dirty. Does his dad run down there and get him a room at the Holiday Inn? Did his dad come down and say, oh son, I, I can't bear to see you like this. Let me put you up. Let me, I got a friend that'll let you live with them. His dad didn't do that. You know why? Because living with the pigs was part of the process to get to him. And when you shortchange that, when you step in and fix that, come and live with me. Let me pay your debt. Let me get you out of the pig pen. Let him stay in the pig pen because you know why? It took the pig pen for him to get to the point in verse 17 where he says, And he came to himself. If his daddy would have ran down there and did what you do, and you do, and bail him out, he never would have come to himself. But we just can't let that happen. We just can't let that happen. We got to be the enabler. Don't shortcut God's dealing with your child. By helping them out because you say, well, I really love him. I can't stand to see him suffer. He made the choice. He has to own it. And if there's any way out of his suffering, it has to be God's way, not your way. Your way put him in the pig pen to begin with. Next thing. Fix the core support system that's broken. 
the core problem will always be mom and dad. Remember, children don't cause problems in the home. They just reveal the problems that are already in the home. Proverbs 11.29 says, here's the principle. He that troubleth his own house shall inherit the wind. That means that you trouble your own house as a mom and dad and don't do what's right. You're going to inherit a storm, the wind. And in some cases, it'll turn into a whirlwind. And that's why I always tell you, you want to fix your family, start with fixing yourself. But I want to tell you something. You want to write this down. This isn't very profound, but I mean, it's very simple, but it's very profound. Some of us need to change this morning. Some of you fathers need to change. Some of you mothers need to change. But I want to tell you something, and here it comes. Write it down. You'll never change till you're committed to change. You'll never change because you hear this sermon and you get, what, 15 minutes of, 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 of remorse? And then you walk out the door and you're still a little remorseful. And you're going to say, oh, I need to change. I need to change. But oh, when you get out that door, when you have the rest of your day, the rest of your life, and you start to see all the things that you invested your life in, that's why you don't change. You want to change, but you're not committed to change. You want to be different, but you're not committed to be different. You don't like the way you are, and you know your marriage is a mess, your family's a mess, your whole world is a mess, but it isn't a mess enough yet that you're really committed to do what you got to do. You have to get committed to it. Not too many people can do that. Third thing, next thing, taking responsibility for the failure of your child on your watch. And I got to tell you, this is the hardest thing for a dad or a mom to do. You know, absolving yourself of your failed family by taking responsibility of your failed family directly to them. In 47 plus years of the ministry, I've seen a lot of water under the bridge with a lot of moms and dads and families. I must tell you, in all of the families that have lost their kids, who have come in and talked to me, when I told them what they probably really needed to do, in 47 plus years of ministry, I remember four families, four dads, who had the courage to do it. And I would tell them, look, your failed family is on you. All right, you got kids now that are out in the world. You want to get them back. I don't know if you can get them back, but if it's possible, Here's the process to start. And even if it's not possible, you do it anyhow because it's the right thing to do. And maybe all they'll have for the rest of their life is this day and God will use it. But you've got to give God something. Got to give God something for him to use with them. Now, you didn't give yourself to God before when you had control of them on your watch. You kept it all to yourself. So now we got this mess. So when in your life are you going to let God use you? You couldn't have let him use you when it was easy. Now you got to let him use you when it's really tough. Do you have the courage to do that? Four men in 47 plus years of men, and one of them is in this church right now as I speak.
and I have more respect for him than, than I could ever, ever imagine to say. He's a hero to me. So you, I tell them, you call a meeting. Call a meeting with your family. Set them down in your home and begin to tell them that you were a failure. And they are where they're at and your heart is broken. But now that you have got the word of God in your life and you know what it's right, that you look back and you just feel absolutely terrible that you did not get it quicker to get it to them. And now they're where they're at and this is where I'm at. Tell them, tell them you're sorry. Ask for their forgiveness. Be honest. Be humble in front of them. Let them see in you the brokenness of a spirit and a contrite heart that you actually realize that they are the way that they are. And if you could go back in time, you would go back in a heartbeat. But you can't. So all you can do is redeem the time. And you sit down with them honestly and openly and say, Hey, look, kids, I'm your dad. And I love you so much and I want you to know I failed you. I would do anything in the world to have you sit by me in church on Sunday and be involved with me in ministry. I don't like where you're at. I don't like your drinking. I don't like your whatever you do. I don't like this. I don't like that. But I know I'm responsible for it. And I'm not here to beat you up over what you do. I'm here to ask you to forgive me for being a failed father and not doing what I needed to do. I can't go back. Oh, God, I wish I could. A, a million times I wake up in the middle of the night and I want to go back. I would do anything in the world to go back to those years knowing what I know now. But I can't go back. So I'm going to do the next best thing. I'm going to start doing what's right. And I want you to forgive me. And if there's ever, ever a chance that we can ever get back with God together, I want you to know I may have failed you back then, but I'll never fail you again. And I'm here. I'll never beat you up for the way you live. I'll never beat you up for what you do because I caused that. But I will be here for you in every aspect of our life. And I ask you to forgive me. And I want you to know that, that I love you and that I will, I will be the best father to you that I could ever be. And you lay your heart out before them. This one act of true biblical humility will do more than all the corrective words or the yelling or the screaming Simply because you are now, as the one who caused it, you are now broken, you are now contrite, and they see it. No pride, no gall, no, no, no phoniness, no fakeness. Lay it right on the table. Now, I'll tell you what will happen. Once you start to take full responsibility and ask for their forgiveness and tell them what a failure you were, believe it or not, they will come to your defense. And they will say, Dad, that's not true. Dad, I'm not going to let you talk to Once they do that, once they do that, you now have a common ground to work on. You accomplish more in one little sentence with them in the first five minutes than you would have tried to do the rest of your life. You know why? Because you broke down the walls, you took responsibility, and now, whether they know it or not, you who caused the blame are now blameless. And they'll say, Dad, I, I, I'm not going to let you say that. We, we made our own choices, and now you, you have it right where you want it. Now you have the ability 
to talk on a level that is biblical level and they don't even know it. Now you have something to work with. Now you can get some things done. Now you begin the process. And then the next thing, you begin a dedicated life of consistency. And you mean it. They not only hear about the vision of your life, now they see it. And I'll tell you what. If we were unsaved, or we were just a bunch of nice people, we were at the Moose Lodge this morning or the <coughs> Veterans of Foreign Wars and we were having a discussion on families, it wouldn't work this way. But because we're a church, because you're saved, because the Holy Spirit of God is living inside you and in your children, if they're saved, now God's Holy Spirit is going to take everything that you've done and everything you're going to do and He's going to beat them senseless. And instead of you trying to do it, you're going to lay prostrate on the ground, open and air self up, asking forgiveness, and let God just take that and work on their hearts. And maybe you'll get them, maybe you won't. I've seen it where you had three or four kids, and maybe you get one or two kids, and the other two doesn't. But it doesn't matter whether you do or you don't. It's never, never too late to do the right thing. And God will get the honor and glory out of it whatever way it goes, but he can't get the honor and glory out of it unless you allow him for you to be the vessel that he flows through. And that's what he wants you to do. Once you're in that position, taking responsibility for your family, now you have the basis to communicate and work toward a solution. It may be a while coming. As I said, maybe it'll never come. I don't know. There's a lot of factors, a lot of different forces that come into every situation is different. But I'm telling you, it's never wrong for you to do the right thing. And this is the biblical approach that you have to take. You know what Jesus said about your salvation? Oh, I know. Turn and burn! Heaven or hell! You know what he said? You and I were dirty, filthy, rotten sinners, deserved to go to hell. And you know what he said to you and me? Come. Let us reason together. Though your sins be as scarlet, I'll make them white as snow. He wants to reason with you. You have to learn how to reason with your kids. You have to get down there on their level where you take the part of God. God didn't have to say that. Can you imagine a holy God looking at a piece of crap like me who deems to scream my lungs out in a lake of fire, who doesn't have one inch of holiness in me, nothing that he would ever be interested in, for the holy God of the universe to come down and look at a wretch like me and say to me, Let's reason together. <laughs> That's my God, man. And then we as parents, as Christians, we have problems with each other, but we become so unreasonable. Every time I have an issue with somebody, no matter what it is, and I, you know, I've had some hairy issues with people over my life, I never come to the place that in that second, in that moment, that fellowship couldn't be restored, we could go along just fine together. 